Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Hellboy Book Club. My name is John Salinas, and I'm here with... Aubrey Loveless. And I'm Danielle. And I'm Matt Trackbine. Hey, Matt, how's it going this week? I'm doing great. How are you guys? Yeah, doing good. It's good to hear from you. Doing all right. Likewise. Like we talk about every week, give us a review if you're enjoying the show. Everything that we do on the show is free. Tell a friend if you have comic-minded friends who have always wanted to get into the Hellboy universe. This is a great way, so spread the word. Follow all the guys, follow all the artists and all those people. Go to Mike Mignola's Art on Facebook. Check out Mignolaverse.com. Skeleton Crew just had some new items that they released, some keychains and patches. They're super cool. We got those in the mail a little while back. And check out the Letterhack podcast. I've really been enjoying your second season, Matt. Yeah, thanks a lot. It's going well. You and your brother have a very similar way of talking. You know, you can kind yeah. of tell that you're related, just uh, just the cadence of the voice. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, isn't that funny? Um, that was the first TakeOver episode, and uh, you are actually going to be the second TakeOver oh, episode. Oh, okay, nice. yeah. Yeah, it's going to be fun. And I also want to make sure to shout out Paul from Gardaharn. Yet again, on our last episode, he played out the episode. What did you guys think about that? Did you Fuck, hear that? Oh, that was amazing. So <laughs> So I wish I had I'll never cre- I'll never end my campaign to get his music as the whatever opening <laughs> as the opening song. Yeah, I wish I had credited him, but I hadn't thought of it yet. I actually didn't think of it until I was editing the episode. I was trying to find a little clip of him playing piano to put in the episode and I went through three different versions of a clip just because there were so many good parts. And um, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to put the whole thing at the end. And it would just went really well with, uh, I tried to get the timing just right on when you say your line at the end. And I thought it came out great. So anyway, a couple people responded that they enjoyed that. Yeah, Shout that... out to Paul from Gardaharn. He's great. He's a great piano player. Oh, oh my God. man. Uh... I give that man 20 bucks to record the theme song. <laughs> and we can just use it. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, I was listening to the episode when uh, when I heard that it was actually thunderstorming and I was at work, uh, and so everything got like kind of dark and it was like cool. So I turned off the lights and just kind of chilled to it. Yeah, it was really yeah. good. Our birds like it. <laughs> they do. And uh, Clayton Showfield at Sir Edward Gray on Twitter, he posted a video on our Twitter page. He said, "I enjoyed this quite a bit. Highly recommended to Hellboy fans." And So Jason Latour, who we're actually going to be talking about on this episode, he does the first two issues that we're going to review. He has a video podcast called The Draw. And the episode that I was watching last night and that was shared here by Clayton was with Gabriel Bond, Fabio Moon. And so they just talk about comics. And it's cool because Jason Latour, he's like already, you know, he's a very famous artist. And then him talking to other artists they like have all their inside lingo and they talk about like you know um you kind of get a different perspective on on uh that whole some process shop talk. yeah it's really who doesn't nice. like listening to shop talk i've li- i watched uh, that episode and then there was another episode with becky clunan that i also watched they were both really good and then so when he's talking to gabriel bond fabio moon Paul as a seta is also just sitting there and every once in a while he just <laughs> chimes in or whatever. It's so cool. Yeah. Oh, dude, so. That's He's so the awesome. Andy Richter of yeah. that <laughs> show. What's the podcast called? It's called The Drawl. D R A W L. So yeah, check that out on YouTube. Okay. I'll have to because uh that sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah. 
At Mr. Forp on Twitter, he said, This is definitely my favorite new pod and Twitter account. I listened to episode one today and already chomping my way through. So thanks a lot, Mr. Forp on Twitter. He has a webcomic called Arrow vs. Evil, The Lost Tales, and it looks pretty cool. I checked it out. So thanks a lot for the love on Twitter. And now we're going to go on to the listener feedback. Get out your trades and floppies. Get out your hardback copies. Digital prints is fine. You can read along in time. We had some feedback from Nicholas Orizaga on BPRD Russia and BPRD Wasteland. Remember, we're always happy to revisit older stories if you're catching up and you send us some feedback on those older stories. We really appreciate it, although the information would only be helpful to someone if they're listening to this episode in a couple weeks because we're in the future, but also in the past, right? <laughs> well, hey, you know, it it's could, interesting to think about, yeah. It could be in a binge mode, and by the time that uh, they... Sure. I mean, this could be on the episode that it's like their first new one okay. after they binged us forever. Okay. Anyway, uh, he said regarding BPRD Russia, this seems super late, but I heard you talking about it again on last week's episode, and I translated the words on the covers of those BPRD Russia covers. Oh, yeah. Cool. Yeah, I saw that. That was amazing. So the first issue says Bureau of Paranormal Research and Defense, and so that makes sense because it's around the symbol. The second says bprd in russia that's the one where it's got like a hand and the letters are coming out from the hand the third one says wall of flesh and that's the episode where there's that like tunnel with all the faces so that kind of makes sense there the fourth one says fight with growing evil that's the one that has kate and yosef and all the agents and then the last one says Let's burn evil with fire. And that's the one that has the guy with the flamethrower on the front. Yeah. That that title is my favorite. Let's burn evil with fire because yeah. I love that sentiment. Let's get behind that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I've been wondering about that forever. So yeah. Thank you so much. Yes. Thank you so much. And he also said regarding BPRD Wasteland, I'm still catching up. I read this today and Agent Nichols' story about riding horses in Philly reminded me of a video I saw a few weeks ago about a cowboy from Philadelphia. And so he linked this video. You can check this out if you Google Malik Divers. He runs a small Philadelphia stable where he trains teenagers to ride and keep horses. Divers says the horses keep the kids off the street and teach them responsibility. And so the video was actually about 18-year-old Shahir Drayton, and he says riding has become an essential form of therapy. So there's this kid, you know, just riding through the streets on a horse, and they're still teaching all this kind of stuff. So that program that Nichols talked about is still being carried on today, and they call themselves the Concrete Cowboys, and they're actually making a movie about it right now starring Idris Elba. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, shit. That's amazing. Cool. I I remember we used to live in this neighborhood where they would ride horses through it every yeah i don't know every on average maybe every six months or so it was like they would start riding horses through the neighborhood yeah and we it would was just super interesting yeah. i don't know who they were what they were doing but they were just a big long parade of people riding horses through like the middle of the city oh yeah and <laughs> super there's interesting this, like, there's this big patch of just like land i guess out there it was near 288 they're doing a lot of construction there but I, sometimes I would see them out there, just on their horses. Yeah. And it, was and it like wasn't really... like the... I mean, okay, so we live in Houston, Texas, right? Yeah. It's not the most 
there's no ranches. It's no. a city. Yes. It's a city. <laughs> so, and it's not like go rodeo day or something. Right. Like it's just a random day of the year that they're riding their horses. I had no idea what was going on. Maybe it was, a, I don't know, some sort of a yeah, I wonder if they program, program or here. I don't know. Or just a lot of people who like horses. Like it's yeah. so weird. Yeah, so I thought that was really cool, and um, I guess we'll probably hear about this movie soon or whatever, sure, yeah. yeah. We also had some feedback on BPRD Lake of Fire. Jason Abaddon said, Matt was talking about how Howard spends all his time in the commissary, but I think he stays there because his Gal Denar half is amazed by things like produce and cake. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, he's not wrong, I mean... I would be. I'd be like, holy <laughs> shit. But he's simultaneously this guy and the other guy. Like, So right. he kno- he knows like modern stuff. Although I am a sucker for stories that have like a time travel-y ancient one. Oh, who's yeah. like, what is this device? Oh. And someone's like, the microwave. <laughs> and they're like, how does this? All I think of is Encino Man. Sure. I love that movie, man. Oh, that movie. <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of, you know, whatever young adult shows that have this right. like character. I'm sure. always a sucker for that character. Drew Campbell said, You guys got me curious about the symbol on Phoenix's sister's swimsuit, and after searching a bit, it looks like the representation of the Aztec sunstone. I can see the central circle surrounded by the four squares representing the four previous suns and the triangular sun rays pointing outward. I don't know what that would mean symbolically, but it's associated with the themes of fertility and human sacrifice, among other things, which kind of fits with the background of Phoenix and her twin, who Phoenix sees as having been sacrificed to grant her abilities. It may be a stretch, but interesting to think about. Yeah, so I was looking at this, the Aztec sunstone is like super detailed it's like super intricate and it has all these different things and scholars have like poured over what they think it means and all this kind of stuff and so when you look at that and you look the at context the context of the culture it's i guess it's difficult to really determine exactly what's going on there right, right? but you can see some of the shapes that yeah. drew was talking about like the four suns if sure, you look at yeah. it you can kind of see that so i thought that was really interesting yeah thank you for and then i didn't have to research it because he said what it meant and all that stuff right. so thank you for the research assist there that's awesome yeah, I saw that he posted that, and then right after he posted that, I watched his video, and it had the same image in it. Oh, really? It was like the same day I, that he posted it. I was just like randomly watching a YouTube video yeah. about uh, world different world religions, and it showed that, that same image. I was like, okay, that's cool. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that is really cool. Synchronicity. We had some feedback on Lobster Johnson, The Burning Hand. Jerry Turnbull said... There's an amazing series of articles about Bende dots. And so he linked this article. Yeah, it was, it was really a great cool. article. It was yeah. called Tarzan and the Bende Dots. And it was about Tarzan's Sunday comics from 1931. And it had pages by Rex Maxson. And so, yeah, they were really cool. And it was like super in-depth. It had all these other links to all these additional articles and all this kind of stuff. So um, the website was called legionofandy.com so if you want to check out those articles there were a ton of them on there you could really go down a rabbit hole last week paul from gardaharn wondered if hellboy ever visited budapest and jerry turnbull said he did when hunting countess kakowski it is confirmed in the companion and so that was in the virkalak okay okay the virkalak i'm glad that y'all nerds sorted that out <laughs> Hey, speaking of the, <laughs> the, 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 the
Speaking yeah, talk of, like a Dracula. Speaking of that story, <laughs> I never did tell you. Thank you for the um, the French Hellboy comic you got me. It's that Aww. one's in there too. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I picked up some comics for people when I was overseas, and it was just cool. Their trades are like these nice hardbacks. Yeah, which is really yeah. cool. Nice. Yeah, it's nice that the hardbacks come like that. Yeah, so I'm glad you enjoyed that. There's like there's one picture you see Hellboy falling down and he says Bondu, <laughs> and it just makes me laugh. I don't know why. There was like five comic book stores all next to each other, and they they had all the regular stuff that you see in a comic book store, and but then some of them also had these like weird old school indie artist sections, oh, yeah, and there yeah. was all this kind of underground stuff. And that's well, cool. They one had thing- a lot of mainstream stuff, but they had a lot of they had a lot of indie like old stuff it was cool yeah you got this comic there that a graphic novel that we later found out it has no english translation yeah i just liked it because i I mean i couldn't read it but i yeah it's really cool though it's about birds illustrations were really cool yeah and so yeah one thing i thought was interesting was like all the back issues i went there on a new comic book day and all the back issues were just the same back issues that we would get here. <laughs> oh, that's They awesome. were like exactly the same. So I thought that was interesting. They were all in English or whatever. Anyway. Uh. Interesting. Drew Campbell said regarding the Burning Hand, Isog is clearly based on Peter Lorre. That makes two Mignolaverse characters based on him. The other is okay. Igor Bromham. I was thinking that, but I didn't say it. Right. But I'm glad that you said it. I think somebody it else said that. Did you say that. that too, Aubrey? We once again talked about it before the episode. Was yeah. Recorded, so we, we need to stop doing that, <laughs> Aubrey. I remember <laughs> thinking that while I was reading it and being yeah. like, nah. It does kind of look that's like That's probably it. not. But no, I guess because, yeah. By consensus, I think we've all agreed that that's definitely who that is. Yeah. And I also wondered what kind of car Wald was driving, that long black car. And Drew Campbell said, it's a Rolls Royce Phantom. And he posted a picture. It does look like that. So, yeah. Oh, I was actually wondering what the other guy was driving, not the Rolls Royce. Oh, the one that Massimo was driving. Yeah, because that car. Go back and look at that. Because that car looked badass. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, Wolfie Dog on Instagram said the cannibal zombie reveal in this story was so unexpected. What a great plot twist! And then we got some feedback from Jan Niklas. Jan Niklas, book club member. Book club member. The angriest leather shrimp this side of a dimly lit speakeasy is back. Hooray. <laughs> now I can finally reveal which black flame is my favorite. Yes, it's this one. What can I say? I love skeletons. I love trench coats and he's burning. That's always a plus <laughs> for me. It's simple and Matt is right. There have been a lot of skull heads over the years, but I can't get enough of them. If Mike would create a new series called Steve Skeleton Hardbone Detective, I would buy it or make it myself because you put a skeleton in a trench coat in a room and everything gets automatically cooler. With like a <laughs> little hat. Yeah. That was pretty awesome. And he gave me bonus points for when I said nine. He said it sounded angry and German enough to be the real deal. Jeez. Nice. <laughs> hey, congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> and Raimund is another angry German. Why won't you learn, America? Destroy them now before they send in the next burning skeleton. Yeah, seriously. He says scary stuff. He says Klein can also be used as an endearing term between lovers like Sweetie. Oh, when, um, he, when he said that to... Uh, Kamala, yeah. yeah. And he right said, um, okay, what else is there to say then that this miniseries was just fun? Action, humor, a humorless main character... That is less way interesting than his supporting cast. It had it all. I also think... 
that it was the right decision to get Arcudi to write for this series. I wasn't always a big fan of his BPRD stuff, but he got the lobster. Those characters feel alive beyond being a parody or homage to pulpy cliches. And you want to know what happens next. What will the lobster fight next? Nazis, cannibals, werewolves, angry Uncle Bob from across the street? Turn the page <laughs> and find out, dear reader. Maybe it's the time period I just love those old hats and Tommy guns and gangsters talking like they swallowed a chicken whole. Put them in a trench coat and a fedora and everyone looks cool, as we saw with the burning skeleton guy. Yeah. Yeah. I, I also enjoy that kind of stuff. It's it's just fun. And he, he Doing al- crimes. Punching Nazis, see? Yeah. And so there was this part that we talked about last week where the Black Flame says Kiefer Man or to, something like that. Yeah, Kiefer to, Man. To, uh, to the lobster. Yeah, and so I asked Jan Niklas, I said, you know, what did this mean? And he said, well, for one thing, it's bullshit. Nobody would say that. Oh, uh, <laughs> yes. It, it seemed like that would be the case, but... He said, translated, it would mean pincer man. <laughs> so, yeah. Huh. Anyway. Yeah, when I read that, I was just like, are they trying to say that that's how he would say, um, like, lobster and... Um... The lobster man or something like yeah. that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Huh. I liked how he called out the bullshit phrase. <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, what is the word for lobster? Yeah, I don't know. Is it there's there's some sort of a slang, like a military slang for like the word pincer? Like how does that Well Jen Niklas said like just the a biggest random phrase I came up with? He said like the biggest bully Peter Parker had to fight during his school days. Like but, calling calling him a dweeb or a bookworm or something like that or Yeah, I guess so. I don't know. Pincer man? Huh. I don't know. Anyway, I guess it's bullshit anyway. I don't know. (laughs) Jason Abaddon said, you guys were wondering how the police could have the Black Flame in custody. I think he was powered by Kamala, and when she died, he just ran out of juice. And so regarding him being powered by her singing, Jason Abaddon also said, it's interesting, Mignola and company have mentioned musical-based magic in passing, like um, how that spell holds Vivara back or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but we've never seen it before, I don't think, anyway. So, yeah, I thought that was interesting. I did make that connection last week when we talked about that. But that is, yeah, uh, kind of similar. Instead of, like, the reverse, though, her singing kind of, like, brought him back or whatever. Right. Yeah. No. I mean, oh, wait. You know badass. what? Oh, you know what that makes me think of, though? Remember when Mr. Pope, he had those frogs that had, like, the the servos on their head or whatever. Yeah, all that crap on it. And then he brought them in with a regular frog, and they all started singing, and that lit the Black Flame costume. Yeah. Do you remember that? They did like a little ceremony on the conference room table. Do you know what I'm talking (laughs) about, Matt? Oh, yeah, yeah. And it kind of of lit the costume up. Yeah, I remember that. Okay. Uh, Yeah. uh, I want to talk about that more later. Okay, okay, cool. Uh, Mark Tweedell said... At last, we can talk about Tanchi Zanich and how amazing his work is. I was a fan of his work back when he was working on Who is Jake Ellis? And I was so thrilled when he landed the Lobster Johnson gig. The Burning Hand introduces one of my favorite characters, Cindy Tynan. It's interesting. The Lobster is the titular character, but the series is more Cindy and Harry's than it is the Lobster's. Usually, our central character grows and changes, but by the very nature of his character, the Lobster can't. We're always kept at arm's length with him. So how can you tell a meaningful story over any length of time? Arcudi approached this the same way Pixar did with Wally. The story isn't about the lead character changing, but how the lead character affects the world and how that changes others. 
I think that this is why we only rarely see stories from the lobster's point of view. We're always seeing him as the lobster's crew sees him, or Cindy sees him, or the police or the gangsters. You could do a story about anyone in New York that gets tangled up in a lobster case. If any other Hellboy title held that sort of distance, it would be off-putting. But when it's Lobster Johnson, it's completely valid. Hell, in The Burning Hand number 1, the lobster is barely in the issue. I thought that was really interesting, yeah, to think hmm. about. Well, I guess when you think about it, I mean, the lobster really wouldn't be as interesting if you got a first-person view. Right, it yeah. would take Because if you did, it would be either totally exactly what you see... <laughs> Or something else that just wouldn't fit to the character. Right, yeah. You know. Ross Radke said, Are these the first Zonyuk stories you've read for the podcast? I suppose they would be, but that seems odd. His Lobster Johnson stuff is great, but I especially like the sci-fi shorts he's got on his website. Zonyuk designed the Red Guards in Last Jedi. After I saw it in the theater... I asked if he had designed a favorite background character, and he said the Stable Boys, but he wasn't sure if they were prominent since he hadn't seen the movie yet. I told him he might be surprised by the end of the movie. Holy shit. Yeah, so I thought that was really interesting. Oh, my God. So, wait, he designed the uh, the Red Guard in uh, Last Jedi? Yeah, and apparently. The... Mm-hmm. Man, those guys were fucking badass Yeah, looking. that was really cool. And then the Stable Boy thing, man, that's so awesome. Yeah. And Ross, he's actually been helping his brother navigate the Hellboy universe, and he was explaining to him everything about the main storyline, and so he was laughing about, like, uh, his brother was asking if the Lobster Johnson had a backstory or origin, and they, he was like, nope. And he was like, well, of course. And- they, uh, they, well, this might not happen yet. Ah. Never mind. <laughs> oh, man. I can't, I can't tell you how, oh, how often that happens where I start to say something and I'm like, oh, wait a minute. Yeah. Never mind. Thank you for doing, thank you for doing that. Yeah. I know it's hard to, to show restraint like that. But Ross had a question for us damn guys. He says, where does the Lobster Johnson land on a scale from Punisher to Captain America? Mm. I don't think he's like either of those characters. Okay. Well, I think it's more like a scale, though, he's trying to say. I don't think, that's, I don't think he's on that scale anywhere. I would I would put this more in terms of D and D orientation hmm. alignment. Explain that a little bit. Okay, more. so you've got you know you've got your chaotic neutral and you've got oh okay I you see know, what you mean yeah like uh, chaotic evil and uh, whatever okay the good so it's more like a okay there's there's more dimensions than that. I'm gonna put him like just above uh, neutral, leaning towards Captain America. <laughs> I I say he's yeah he's right in the middle. I th- I think yeah. if if I was using that scale, but he's such a noir character. Yeah, but it's kind of like that version of that almost. I don't know. I mean, it's like there's a there's a Batman element in there. No, too, no, 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 no. Because almost... he doesn't even have the Batman thing because he doesn't have any fucking funding. The well, symbolism. We don't, well, we don't know that though. He's got the scrappy. <laughs> Pals, well, I guess he's kind of the... got the Bat Cave, and he's kind of got like his little. He's got his howling commandos, so I guess it's more of it's the brandy, and I guess that makes me think of Batman. No, I but, think it's more but, of an but, attitude. But yeah, the more that I think about it, I guess it is more. There's more dimensions to yeah. that. That's why I want to throw in another character. What, how do you feel about that, man? It's a little bit daredevil. Yeah, I don't know. It's a well, he seemingly has like a supernatural angle to him, right? Like we've already seen him yeah. pop up as a ghost, which which makes it more original than something that may appear on that scale but just for the sake of discussion um (laughs) i gotta say he's more captain america because he does end up working for 
the United States. Oh government, yeah, right? for sure. The yeah, but just, be, mission. just because I I feel like that just because at, in that moment there their, their motivations were aligned. He just wants to fucking kill Nazis, right? Which I respect. Justice. Yeah, and he maybe he was like, hey, I can get some funding to go kill extra more Nazis. Yeah. And go do this. Like I can, you know, I can use these resources to to means to an end, kind of thing. I think with Captain America, he was like, "Yeah, America." It's, I get that more of that feeling of like he's trying to be like, "That's not what we stand for," even though that's totally what America fucking stands <laughs> for. But it's you know, with Lobster Johnson, I think he just is killing Nazis any way he can, and yeah. he's got his sure he's got his ragtag team of Howling Commandos, but I feel like that's the only place where they really intersect. Okay. Is punching Nazis and having a scrappy band of do-gooders at his side. Okay. And then he's so he's so noir. He's so noir. Yeah. Like it's very who knows what looks in the hearts of men. You know what I mean? It's very <laughs> uh, Yeah, I love that. I think Punisher kind of throws it off because there is no noir version of Punisher. Yeah, I don't think there has been. He's just a guy well, that likes has. to murder. Well, well, he came out in the 70s. Yeah, but did they ever introduce him into that 1604 universe? Doesn't matter. I, mean, I was talking about like I was talking about like you know because um, Punisher murders all kinds of fuckers. Uh, Batman and Captain America, they all have origins in the whole 1930s, along with the Shadow okay, and see. all that. And that's yeah, how yeah. that character kind of plays in like that. Too. Okay. okay, I haven't yeah. read a lot of Punisher, but just like I get the impression that he just sort of kills people. Well, yeah, whoever he wants. Well, he's getting revenge because they killed his entire family. And uh, right, including but, his second cousin, three times removed. But does he kill people <laughs> other than the people who killed his family? Oh yeah, those. People okay, are so long I don't dead. understand like <laughs> who he is still killing. But anyway, he's yeah. killing crime. I, I don't guess. It, 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 then we get into a whole philosophical thing about what crime is, and I right. get all. Yeah, that's a whole other thing. Yeah. 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 Well, that was a fun question. I like stuff like that. It's just, uh, yeah. That was yeah. fun to talk about. Thanks, Ross, for I that. Guess, I guess that's that makes me think about why I like Lobster Johnson so much is because I don't, I can't think of another character that's, ah, that's okay. like him. Yeah. I think it's set and setting is very unique. And the fact that Hellboy, he's someone that Hellboy looks up to oh, so yeah. much is another thing. Cool. Also, like, there's three different versions of him. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. The TV and the wrestler. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Well, well in the and- comics, the pulp... The you know yeah whatever and the ghost version too I guess is yeah. is another thing. Well, he yeah. the ghost version is the version. Is that him? Yeah, yeah. Huh. Well, I mean, it's him alive and him dead. He's still got the whole thing. Okay. Punched Nazis. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, and now we're gonna go on to our book club episode for the week. This week we're talking about Sledgehammer Forty Four. This is a two issue mini series published from March to April twenty thirteen. Story by Mignola and Arcudi. Art by Jason Latour. So Jason Latour, we saw him previously on Pickens County Horror. That was that story with Agent Vaughn and the fungus vampire guys. Yeah. Nice. Colors by Dave Stewart and letters by Clem Robbins. We open up in 1944, August in France. And so this is probably part of the liberation of Paris, also known as the Battle for Paris in Belgium. Um, This was taking place during this time. Paris had been ruled by Nazi Germany since June of 1940. The liberation began when the French resistance staged an uprising against the German garrison upon the approach of the U.S. Army led by General Patton. On August 25th, the commander of the German garrison and the military governor of Paris surrendered 
to the French at the Hotel Maurice. And so this takes place in, um, how do you say this, Danielle? Do you know how to say this? Let me take a look at this here. <laughs> I, I can't, I don't even want to attempt that because it's, I'm going to make it sound like garbage and everyone okay. who actually knows how to speak French is going to listen to that and be like, ugh, disgusting. This word, chio, the second word, that means puppy. And there is, there are many places in France with this first part, Debine. Something like that. Anyway, okay. so Debenet. Uh, De I don't know, man. But I couldn't. We, we shouldn't try to pronounce. But this. I, I know we just should stay away from it. But anyway, uh, so this isn't actually a real place. It has some basis. It could be based on the name. You know, this first panel is a shot right out of the HBO series Band of Brothers. Have you ever okay. seen? Oh, that? oh I have great, seen that. That's a great yeah, show. Not in forever, but I didn't know that. I've never and, seen it. And I can send you the image that I'm talking oh, about. Oh, yes. With, it's got that exact same poster behind the soldiers. They're looking around the corner. Oh, wow. It looks the exact same. And that was during the liberation of, I'm going to try and pronounce this, Carentan, C-A-R-E-N-T-A-N. So when they were liberating that town on D-Day, uh, well, well, there's an episode about the liberation of that town on D-Day and their soldiers peeking around a corner. I think they were trying to take out a sniper or something, but that poster's on the wall right behind them. Oh, wow. Wow, yeah. that's cool. Yeah, and this is an actual poster. I think it says, France, take care of the ghosts. It's a 1941 poster of the French League Marianne. Actually, I'll post a picture of a side-by-side. -side. Did you have anything about that poster, Matt? That's how I recognized yeah. it was from Band of Brothers, because when I was watching that show, which I rewatch a lot, I love that okay. series, I was like, wow, what's that poster? So I had looked it up before. Ah, okay, cool. And so when I opened this comic, I was like, oh man, these guys are using Band of Brothers for reference. This is going <laughs> to be great. So... Private Redding talks to Captain Glisham. He asks why they're even there. What's so important in that armory? And where's their support? Glisham asks Redding, weren't you even listening at the briefing? We're the support. And so we cut to a soldier in a warplane. This looks like a four-engine bomber aircraft. There were a lot of these types of aircraft at the time. Um, probably wrong, but it kind of looks like the Douglas XB-19, which was an experimental heavy bomber aircraft. And they call for Project Epimetheus, which means hindsight, was the brother of Prometheus. Together they acted as representatives of mankind. While Prometheus is characterized as ingenious and clever, Epimetheus is depicted as foolish. So I thought that was interesting because... The last time we saw this armor uh, was in the Iron Prometheus, which was that Lobster Johnson story. So I actually kind of forgot about that until later in the story. Yeah. So I was just like, oh, fuck, that's right. <laughs> so this guy, he's talking on the radio and he's like, loud and clear, Navigator, Project Epimetheus, my ass. And he writes Sledgehammer on there on the side. <laughs> so I thought that was really cool. They have their own like code name for it. So did that Lobster Johnson series, The Iron Prometheus, come out before BPRD The Dead? I don't know. I don't know off the top of my head. I'll have to I'll have to look because at that. Johan finds that scrapbook in the Colorado BPRD headquarters. Uh-huh. Yeah, and it's got and a picture in there of them like flamethrowing it, right, or something? Yeah. That's it, right? So may so that may technically be the first appearance. Oh yeah. No, yeah, you're right. 
Yeah, and so he's riding the sledgehammer on this giant bomb structure. It looks like a giant, um, like, atom bomb or something. And so, yeah, Jason Latour does some really awesome work here as the bomb is falling down. I like all the little visual sound effects that he writes in there. Just really cool work as this thing, like, crashes down. And so it just lands. It doesn't explode. It just kind of sits there after it lands. Like that effect to the thumb. Right. That's it. Writing ass. And then this, like, big leg kicks the the hatch off of it. I thought that was really cool. That's a nice little effect. I love that panel. Because you go from, that's it, to, uh-oh, this is going to be awesome. Yeah. Right? <laughs> you can almost hear the entrance music. Yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> a leg kicks out the hatch, and this armored figure steps out in this military jacket. And so this armor, it's familiar to us. Or it should be, we saw poor Mr. Sachs wear it and a similar helmet in Lobster Johnson, the Iron Prometheus. The Nazis shoot at the sledgehammer armor and the bullets are just bouncing off of it. Um, Again, just really cool effects. The color and art in this is really, really good. Redding doesn't know what to make of this. He's so mesmerized. Captain Gleesham has to pull him down out of the light. He says, this is nuts. Some guy in a Flash Gordon getup is leading us. We'll all be killed. Okay, he doesn't look anything like Flash Gordon. Right. <laughs> I don't understand. Maybe they what had like um, robots in Flash Gordon. Okay. They didn't. And Flash Gordon, that's a reference to the hero in a space opera adventure comic strip created and originally drawn by Alex Raymond, first published in 1934. Gleshem tells Redding to shut up and holds out his goggles. Remember these? There's a pair in your pack. Put them on. And so we see the sledgehammer armor like powering up or something as he holds his fist together. You you forgot the coolest thing about Flash Gordon, and that would be the Queen did the soundtrack in the 70s. Oh, yeah, that was great. <laughs> I did not forget that. I have never forgotten that. Oh, I was saying he forgot to mention it. Oh, yeah, you did forget my, to mention that. It's one of my favorite uh, Queen things ever. Really? Because I used yeah. to watch oh, that movie that. nonstop. <laughs> and um, I had the single... And so the 45 single, it had the Flash Gordon theme on one side, and on the other side, it had the football fight song. And it had all the dialogue from the football (laughs) fight in there, too. And I just have a lot of memories of listening to that anyway. Doesn't Redding seem like, you know, this was, he was probably drafted, right? Oh, yeah. He's like, he doesn't really know what's going on. Like, did he sleep through everything? (laughs) He's, he, whether he's drafted or not, I know, I, I, I get the impression that he, didn't set out to be a soldier right Right. and i think it's funny the way he's like just sort of fumbling you know he (laughs) he hasn't paid attention to anything uh from the briefing he didn't remember the goggles and then when he says a flash gordon get up which we know flash gordon didn't dress like this right (laughs) i mean unless i'm wrong that's just him being like um detached again right right you see he just when I first read this, I was like, why are we focused on the one guy who just doesn't seem to be um, informed or paying attention? Right, right. I don't know. I, I sort of got the impression that it was like you can stumble your way through life, but at the when it comes down to it, are you are you going to know what to do when things are so extreme that you have to choose between what's really really right and what's might be a lot easier Mm -hmm. so i think that he's he's sort of you know fumbling and stumbling his way through 
this i mean it's a very extreme situation you know how many of us have actually been to war i have not uh so you know i I would be like this guy be like oh what's going on and when it comes right down to it though later we haven't gotten that part of the story yet but he's you know he's like fuck that shit right you're not taking me alive i'm gonna shoot as many goddamn nazis as i can before they fucking get me and that's like yeah. Who before he was just like, Ooh, yeah, what's, what's going, going on? on here, Scoob? You know, it's very. <laughs> so I don't know. I think that we were maybe meant to see that. Like sure. instantaneously, he was able to uh, to to switch to flip into this mode of like, nah, we're mm-hmm. just gonna, let's kill some Nazis, and and even give up later as we see something even more extreme than just his own life, which is he he gives up some some other things right uh, beyond that. Um, just because of something he felt was right. So, I don't know. Maybe maybe it's, you know, it, character growth. Yeah, I don't sure. Know. It's a character, <laughs> character development. Yeah, writing is really interesting. And um, But I really love this effect here as it all just goes white as the sledgehammer armor kind of unleashes on all these Nazis. Translated from the German. <laughs> oh, it does say that. Yeah, you're right. Afterwards... When the soldiers look around the corner, like, every all the Nazis are just fried. Lightning still crackles all around, and the sledgehammer armor punches into the base. How's that for Flash Gordon, Glesham says, as he leads the troops? Wait, we're following him, Redding asks? Why does that guy need backup? And then so, uh, this one guy says, Mother Maria, that's Morala, one of the other soldiers here, and they're all looking at the dead Nazis. So they're like, why does this guy need backup? And then right on cue, the sledgehammer armor is thrown through an exterior wall and he lands right in front of the soldiers. And he says, run behind him, a Nazi bot. (laughs) Fucking ugly Nazi bot. (laughs) In the sketchbook, it says that Guy Davis and Mignola went back and forth on the design for this guy. And so he's got like a... He's like, uh, he's got this round kind of head. Giant Nazi robot. And he's got a cannon on one arm and a claw on the other arm. And so, yeah, this is really great. I just love kind of all this kind of throwback design a little bit. Didn't it also say in the sketchbook that they were saying that it was like a, like a tank turned into a robot kind of thing? Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so there's some great action here as this thing like emerges and um, all the soldiers start shooting at it. I really love this lighting effect, right? Dave Stewart, when they start shooting at it, it's all like the color palette right, just completely yeah. changes as, yeah. you know, all that just from all the gunfire. And then Redding yells, robot. <laughs> Robots are fighting this damn war. <laughs> That's one of my favorite lines. Yeah. Yeah. That is great. <laughs> yeah. But think about this. Yeah. You just see this kind of happening. The- oh, and incidentally, this is the 101st because they have the uh spade on the side of their helmet oh okay i didn't know what that meant yeah thank yeah you the 101st airborne so they parachuted into there okay nice yeah he kept saying we're the backup we're the backup right that, that makes sense and the captain is just firing at the robot like crazy and so this one guy private bunkers he says he thinks he's sergeant york that's a reference to a 1941 American biographical film about the life of Alvin York. He was one of the most decorated American soldiers of World War I. It was directed by Howard Hawks, and it was the highest grossing film of the year. 
Gary Cooper portrayed Sergeant York. But apparently the real guy, he didn't want any of this. And they, like, pressured him into making this movie. So then I think he even had some power and he was like, well, if you're going to make it, you have to do it like this and like this or whatever. Oh, interesting. But apparently, like, he did not want all the fame that came along with being one of the most decorated war heroes. Anyway, Sledgehammer yells at him to run. Run or I'll kill you. And so I think, like... He's also, that's a badass line to tell a guy, but also I think like when he unleashes the Vril, he would fry all those guys. Yeah, Yeah. I I actually am going to kill him. Right, you know. And so the robot claw, it comes down on the sledgehammer armor and he starts like ramping up. You see all the lightning and everything and he unleashes this huge energy. The panel goes all white. I just really like that effect. It's just uh, really interesting how they kind of do this. This panel here, the movement, it looks like an a- like it's animated. Yeah, it really does. I mean, honestly, this this is I can see this moving. I can see this as an animation. It's so well. The Nazi drawn. bot where it's like swinging that claw. Well, where he is lifting up his hand and all the wind is moving everything. Yeah. It's very the the perspective. Cinematic. It's, yeah, it's very cinematic. Yeah. It's a good word for it. The next page is one of my favorite pages. Yeah, that is so cool. The, I mean, especially this um, this bottom right panel is, yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah, the way that they do yeah. this. So there's all this like crackling energy, this huge crater left after the sledgehammer armor unleashed that huge burst of vril. Speaking about the art, can we agree that Latour is on fire here? Amazing. Yeah. I, oh my God, I love so good. Well, yeah, and Dave loved, Stewart's uh, colors are so good. Well, like Pickens County was great, right? Yeah. But this feels so much tighter and more artistic. You know, I feel like he's taking, he's uh, pushing his own boundaries here. It's not just like comic book art. I think he's being very artistic in well, his approach. He's more comfortable with his style, too, it looks like. He's settled yeah, I mean, this. that may very well be, yeah. yeah. And yeah, I want to talk about that a little bit more when we get to a, a, a later piece. But yeah, I totally agree. All this effect is just really amazing. After the dust settles, there's this giant crater and the soldiers inspect the debris. They think that this was too much for Sledgehammer. And we see this dead Nazi. And so when I, at first when I saw that dead guy, I was like, oh, is that 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 dead guy that's in Mr. Pope's office, but I think this is just the dead guy from the inside the Nazi bot. You know, I always start thinking about stuff like that, but I think they even say later that it's the guy from inside the Nazi bot. And they come across the sledgehammer armor. They try to pull off the helmet, but there's no way. Nary so much as a keyhole, Bunker says. In fact, he can't see anybody in the armor. He suspects it could be a robot, but Glesham says he heard a voice. There's a man in there. Redding tells him, even if there was, we saw what that energy did to the Nazi bot guy. And the captain says it doesn't matter. They're his backup right down the line. His armor is classified equipment, and they're under orders to keep it from the Germans. Glesham, are you touched? Bunker says. How in the hell are we supposed to move this thing? Dragging him along, we'll be sitting ducks. Look around, man. Who's even going to know he was here? And then the sledgehammer armor kind of groans. And so now they know that there is actually a guy in there. Yeah. That settled it for everybody, Glesham says. All right, get some rest. Big day tomorrow. And so we cut to them. They've got him in a wheelbarrow, right? I really like that. Okay, so I feel like the fact that 
there's a guy in there probably convinced them all like, all right, we can't leave this guy behind. That's well and good. And that's great. That's where they draw the line. I think that's good. But honestly, realistically, I feel like it already would have been settled by just like, hey, this is like American technology and we'll probably all be shot to death right, if we don't yeah. take this with us. <laughs> like if the, if this falls into the hands of the Germans, we'll probably be shot for treason, right? Like, is that not a thing? Sure. Or they'll be put in jail or some shit. I don't know, right? Like they, that's their responsibility. They have to take that shit with them or destroy it. I don't know. I guess it really depends on what their mission parameters right. were. Right. Because they seem to like... Maybe I'm being I mean, too did, nitpicky, they, but that they seems They knew about like, it, so... Make, so yeah. They probably would have had been on the line. Yeah. Right. But then the one guy, uh, Redding, is that his name? Yeah. Yeah. He's like, what are we doing here again? Yeah. The whole, the whole thing. And it's just like, so So are they just randomly assigned and they don't know what it is? It seems like the captain only knows. It's like a yeah. need to know yeah. thing. But no, I yeah, am glad I, that that's where they drew the line. That they were like, all right, it's a person. We got to take this person. Right, you know what right, I mean? I think, yeah, that's, yeah. I think that's great. I think sure. that's very good. And I think that that's good storytelling. Like, okay, well, these these men are all basically good people and they they're not going to leave a man down even if that man is a weird ghost robot <laughs> to danielle's point you are right especially in the <laughs> hellboy universe right. we know that hitler and the nazis had a lot of this stuff cooking yeah that was way worse than that robot yeah right? and they don't and they, they don't want anybody to get their hands on it before the germans get there <laughs> so i'm sure if if the head of this group knows anything about or, or has any insight to uh, classified intelligence, he would know Hitler would love to get his hands on this. Yeah. So we got to take it with us. So yeah. I think that's a good point. Maybe he uh, he does know and he knows that they have to take it with him because of all that. But he the guys don't know, but he's just trying to mot- motivate them through. Um, sure. Through actually doing the right thing. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. Teamwork. Person, yeah. 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 Well, you got to know how to inspire. Uh, what's it called? camaraderie and shit yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. and as they go along they kind of get lost and they run into some other soldiers when they're talking they mention joe dimaggio as the password nicknamed jolton joel the yankee clipper dimaggio was an american baseball center fielder who famously played for the new york yankees they don't know what day it is and as they catch up this one guy's like what the devil they have there in the wheelbarrow Last night's visitor, he doesn't say much. What the devil have you got there? (laughs) And then this new guy, Phelps, he knows about Project Epimetheus. He says they didn't hear him land because they were working mortars. So that's their excuse, I guess, right? They were firing these mortars so they didn't hear all that explosion. Mm. They decide to have some breakfast. And so Redding, it's his job to watch out for the Germans. They mention that. And he starts to get suspicious of Phelps. And he's like... Because they said, what the devil, and you lot. He speaks like a Brit, like he learned the language. And suddenly the sledgehammer armor kind of comes alive and it grabs Redding. Don't worry, it tells him. And then the hand just collapses, like he's dead. I actually really like that little point uh, where he's like, he sounds like he's trying to sound American. Right, yeah. you lot. It made me think of um, the movie Inglorious Bastards. That's some cool spy shit, yeah. Yeah, oh, where he with got, the three. With he goes the to three. order the three, and yeah. He, yeah, and he does it the wrong way, and it's just like, that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, I love cool spy shit like that. Yeah, and what's up with that ascot? That's a dead giveaway. Okay, yeah. Oh, you're absolutely like right. <laughs> we all kind of probably. Um, but <laughs> I wanted to. The ascot. <laughs> but, like, wait a minute. And all these uh, all these panels with the soldiers too. I just kind of like the color. It kind of has like this kind of throwback, yeah. almost sepia tone kind of thing going on. 
they say that he's dead. Well, now that's a shame, but we really don't need any of you Americans alive. Phelps is a Nazi bastard. This man jumps out of a fucking Nazi tank with the Iron Cross on his ascot yeah. and shit. <laughs> yeah, so he the- looks like he has a uh, Nazi matches. Even I was about to say, I was just oh, about to say, yeah. hey, did you get a look at this man's matches? Oh, shit, those totally are Nazi matches. I was matches. just about right. to say that shit. Nazi matches, TM. Uh-uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, yeah, so so these guys weren't really soldiers. They were undercover Nazis trying to get the armor. Chapter 2, great cover by Mignola. Always awesome to get these Mignola covers. That is good. Yeah, identical to the first cover in in many ways, right? Yeah. It's like the exact same image as Sledgehammer, but unfinished, which makes me think, unless they did some digital editing, he did the second cover first. Like, he stopped halfway on the drawing. Right. And who knows? But it's one of those things where, when you look at it, it's at least the exact same pose. Yeah, I want to put those side by side. That is really cool. This Nazi bastard Phelps, he says as they turn over the armor, they'll live. Otherwise, <laughs> they'll kill them and take it anyway. And as they're held at gunpoint, Glesham whispers to Redding to get ready. Okay, okay, hands in the air, Glesham says. Wouldn't want you to waste any ammo on us. We're just the backup. And he runs up and he tackles Phelps and pulls a grenade. And Redding starts firing Glesham runs up to the guy in the tank who's trying to close the hatch. I really like this. He's trying to close it. And then at the last minute, he's like, hold on there, Rommel. And he tosses the grenade in. And then as he jumps away, that is one of the coolest panels ever. Oh, yeah. And it moves so smoothly, too. It's very satisfying to see this guy throw this grenade in there. But it's it's so well depicted. Yeah. Just action-packed. Both these issues are just full of action. I usually skip shit like this. Yeah. I'm not kidding. I usually just kind of skim stuff like that. You have to really hold my attention on an action, quote unquote, action panel. But if it's if it's dynamic enough, if 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 the focus of the attention is where it needs to be, like I am so drawn in and it's, yeah, this is definitely, this is a good couple of pages. Yeah, it's just really well paced. I also like how on the, the top panel here. Where you see one of the guys shooting, and then the, in the background, it's just like a, it's just the lines for the character. Yeah, that. I mean that, that's a really neat, and it, it, it kind of adds to that um, quick motion of everything going on. Yeah, it's a good way to get your reader to focus, yeah. like where they need to be, and kind of just getting an impression of the action going. And it, it might also even be a reflection of how the character is feeling, because who knows in a moment like that, everything might feel that way yeah. to yeah. you right like that's something i don't know well there's a few less nazis Patton needs to worry about glesham says he's got this hero moment where he's like walking with his gun yeah. and the tanks on fire <laughs> behind mm-hmm. him that's really cool bunkers asks if he's crazy and glesham says the armor is worth more than he and redding and then suddenly redding starts coughing and he's really hacking there's a cool sound effect there and then he sees blood and when we pan out we see that he's been shot or like hit with shrapnel or something. Yeah, right? something yeah. like that. Maybe a little shrapnel, yeah. They say they'll get him to the dock. Nick's that, Morales says. Don't need a password to see these bunch isn't on our side. I, I like the initial um, response of this guy. He goes, it's okay. It's not that. It's not bad. It's not bad. You wouldn't right. be standing if it was bad. Right. You're cool. Yeah, you You're cool. To... Trying to immediately yeah. get in that zone yeah. of, 
let's prevent this guy from going into shock. Let's get this guy calm, and we're going to sit him down. You know, and it's a very, he goes right into that kind of making yeah. sure this guy doesn't freak out mode. When it's like, you know, your first instinct is to fucking freak out. Sure. So I, anyway, I just like little character moments like yeah, that. Yeah, I know. It's really good. First, all this happens, and then now we see this other large group of Nazis. They've got multiple tanks and a ton of soldiers, right? I would like to cast this guy who says, uh, we don't need a password to see this bunch isn't on our side. Yeah, uh-huh. like I would like to cast this guy as, uh, oh my fuck. He's in like Ant-Man. Oh, you're talking Michael about uh, Michael Pena. Yes, yeah, he's so, I think oh, he would yeah. be good as this guy. He's in a lot of, and he's actually been in this role a couple times as like, he's like an army guy or whatever. Oh, okay. I think. Yeah, yeah in uh, the movie Fury. Oh, okay. What was it called? I've never. Fury oh, was it? tank movie with brad pitt by i think it's uh i've never seen oh, that well what's the name of the the director that did suicide squad and all that uh, david, 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 david yeah david, david Ayer, Ayer, yeah, yeah. yeah yeah wasn't he in another movie with um i think he was in a movie with anyway it doesn't matter i just that's who i'm guessing yeah guys. and glesham orders the team to get going but bunkers has his doubts how fast can we go they'll be on us in no time besides they'll have a medic so they're, I guess they're thinking like, well, if we leave Reddy and they'll like take care of him, like they'll patch him up or something, right? Because they'll well, they're to... talking about surrendering. Yeah, and so Glesham's like, yeah, all right, and he starts to put Redding down, and Redding's like, what do you mean, all right, Pat? I couldn't live with myself if you died now. No, I guess not, because you're the one who went ape and got me into that firefight. If you were planning to surrender anyway, why not before I got the bullet in me? Oh, it's a bullet. Okay. <laughs> Well, he's assuming he could right, still be right, shrapnel. Right, right. No, no chance. When those Nazi bastards get here, I'm shooting as many of them as I can. They're not taking me alive. So if you really want to do me a favor, let's move out. And so they're still going. And yeah. now they have Redding. One of them's kind of they all They all want to surrender. Their faces yeah. are like, ugh, no. I mean, Redding is, he has found, I don't know if it's courage or what, but he's a totally different character. Yeah. Right? yeah. That's what I was saying. Yeah, he's he's he gets hit and he's like, okay, we're going to kill Nazis or right. we're going to die trying or we're yeah. going to fucking try and hide. And he's well, in also, it to win it. Yeah. right before that happened, the sledgehammer armor grabbed him and yeah. said, don't worry. Yeah. So that oh, also right. happened too. I would, if I could do a go pack in time casting on this guy, <laughs> it would be uh, James is it James Spader? Okay. Was young he young version? Yeah, young version when he a la uh fucking uh the Another Stargate. Star was okay, it Stargate? Stargate. Yeah. Stargate, yeah. No, yeah. No, right. okay. He's a very Stargate it. guy. I did it. I fucking love that movie, is why. <laughs> they arrive at the so they head out with Redding and they arrive at a barn and they grab a bucket of water and head inside. They figure the barn will be easy to defend. It doesn't have windows. And they probably won't fire a shell into it since they want the armor. Oh, it makes sense. So they try and wait him out. And so we cut to later in the day. The Nazis have totally surrounded the barn. It looks like nighttime, doesn't it? Yeah. And from outside, their captain tells the soldiers that they'll run out of supplies soon and they'll get tired. And the Nazis will just come in and take what they want. And so Glesham, he shoots out one of the headlights on their Jeep. And then Bunkers is like, nice shooting. And he's like, well, I was aiming for his knee. It's cute. Yeah. It's a good moment. <laughs> I mean. I like that. Dude, that guy's got one smug, dumb look on his face, yeah. too. He's all like, hey, we won't run out of food. <laughs> Sorry. I don't know why I said it like that. 
And so we cut over to the sledgehammer armor in the wheelbarrow, and Redding is nearby, laying on some hay. Mr. Redding, Patrick, a voice says. Redding sees light from outside the barn, and he sees the shape of a man. Who are you? It doesn't matter. Not for either one of us. Not anymore. It's time to go. And so we see this man. He's kind of in a uniform similar to the one that Mr. Sachs wore in Lobster Johnson, the Iron Prometheus. And the uniform says Fields. Redding starts to put it together that he's the guy in the armor. You died, right? Then that means I'm dead. Fields says it doesn't matter. And Redding says, like hell, it doesn't matter. I don't want to die. He still wants to see his family and friends, and he turns to look at the team, but they all appear to be dead too. When did this happen, he asks. Fields says this is the only outcome if the standoff continues. What do you mean if, Redding asks, they're dead, and oh god, they took the armor. The Nazis have it. So now he's like, now he cares about the mission and all this kind of stuff. Now that he's all dead and everything. (laughs) Yeah. That no longer need concern you, Fields says. That's for the living world of men, not you. But Redding says if they have it, they will study it, and Fields finishes his sentence. Eventually they will learn how it works, how to harness the Vril power, as the angel Anum did at the beginning of the world, as the priest of Hyperborea did, as those few early humans were able to do. But they rightly feared that power might fall into evil hands, so they took its evil to their graves. Okay, so we need to talk about this page, right? Yeah, we've got the <laughs> yeah. we've got yeah, the the, the guy reaching out for the flame. Here. Yeah, we see Anum uh, pulling the fire out of the air. One of my favorite yeah, panels of awesome. all time. Yeah, so you know, uh, Jason Latour. We kind of talked about this already. He has this kind of. He's got this very artistic style. This whole story is kind of like this war story, and then you. But then it goes to this weird. It like has this turn right here where you just yeah. go, what? You know what I mean? Like it. I just really like this turn right here as it kind of opens it up and starts connecting all these other things that we've learned. Yeah, any Hellboy or BPRD reader is immediately connecting to those bottom three panels, right? They're going, oh, Vril, Flama. What do they call it? Flama, Flama Reconditus. Right. The secret fire, right? Um, yeah. Or Vril. And so the second he says, harness the Vril power, it's almost like an inside thing for right. us, right? Like, yeah. oh, we know what that is. And here it is. They're showing us, right? So now Redding knows what we know. Right. That's how I took this. When we see, you know, the angel and. And uh, the guy with the handprint on his forehead, we all know what that is. So now Redding knows. He's he's right up to speed with the reader. Yeah, and that little thing, I think that that's Sean Chin, but that little thing that he's holding yeah. is the relic that Liz right. used in the Black Flame also. So yeah, just an amazing page. And so we also see, I want to point out, um, when he's talking about how the Nazis will find it, we see that Anum's fork. That was like the crucial piece of the suit in the Iron Prometheus. And so here we see that again. They're taking it off. And so Field says the Nazis will make their own version of the suit. And so this is crazy where we see this like alternate reality kind of, or we see what's going to happen in the future. Yeah. It's so it incredibly spooky. And it's just like, ugh. I also like how, I guess it's Fields. He's dead and he... um He's accepted his fate. It's like, remember when um, Johan will cause the spirit to come out of the body and they're like, will you tell me your story? And he goes, why? I guess it doesn't matter, but right. sure, here you go. Uh, so they're also kind of sort of non, 
nonchalant about everything. Yeah. But, but, um, Thanks for making that connection. But then, uh, but then when Redding, now that he's dead, he he is not ready to go. Yeah. He, he's like, no, I am not accepting this. He's still tied yeah. to all the human stuff. And I feel like this is uh, kind of the first time we've seen something like that. Yeah. Well, I guess, well... Yeah, no, it is. I mean, I was going to say Johan, but Johan was a different case. Yeah, it's like he's telling him none of this stuff matters. It, it's really not a big deal. Don't worry about it. But he's got to show him the consequences, right? To sort of like bring him along. Yeah, and but it, so it does matter. It, yeah, at, at least a little bit. But yeah. so so what he says doesn't matter might be something like at a much higher level. Right. Right. You know, he's like, don't worry about the details. The broad strokes are, are what's important. Yeah, but he's, it's, it's sending two messages because he's like, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter, but look at all this bad stuff that's going to happen because of this. And it's kind of like, yeah. it reminded me of when Panya was like, oh, yeah, Abe, they're going to do all this terrible stuff to you, but you decide what you need to do. And he's like, well, I'm taking off. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah, it's kind of right. it's, it's kind of like a double message almost. Anyway, it's like saying one thing, but showing something else. But this is of no concern to us. No concern. What do you mean? You can stop it. Do something, Redding pleads. Field says, it's too late for me. I'm already gone. And so, yeah, this cosmic stuff is just, yeah, it's really amazing. And so I also like this. This is the point I was trying to get at earlier. Latour is doing this kind of army story, but then it kind of dips into this weird kind of almost existential Almost this Major Tom kind of thing. yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's very Star Child like from 2001. Yeah. <laughs> well, what are we looking at? Is this real? What is this? And is this what I the Beyond that... looks like? Yeah, well, he says the suit, the real, it did something to me, changed me into something. Yeah, so. Okay, but where are they? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, where is this? It's so weird because it, it looks like it's radiating from him. Right. right. Yeah. Or has it just appeared to Redding? I don't know. It's it's weird. This okay. is a, this is one of the most abstract things in the Hellboy universe. No, but I also okay. I'm something I you can't I guess handle it, a little cosmic shit. <laughs> something I want to point apart out. The seams here. We'll, we'll we'll come back to this later, but I want to point out Fields. One of his eyes is like a star, mm-hmm. and then it focuses in on that star eye. It, that's what it looks like on this one page. Anyway, I'll come back to that later. So Field says, but Patrick, you are free. The concerns of this world need not be yours. And then so we see it kind of looks like Fields is looking at his own dead body. Like he's yeah. like having an out-of-body experience or something. I guess he just died and we're looking at his spirit or something. And then we see it walk over and stand over the sledgehammer armor. And then so we cut over to Morala and he sees the sledgehammer armor get up. And so they're like, whoa, you know, this is awesome. Glesham says, brother, am I happy about that? I thought we were all dead as Dillinger, but now, now we got a fighting chance. Yeah, a fighting chance, the armor says. And so we see it step out. I like how he says, um, they say, you, you're okay. And he's like, I'm okay. Yeah. That's so, like, he, he says it real plainly. Like, it almost reminded me of, uh, like, Eleven from Stranger Things. Right, right. Oh. <laughs> you know, she's always like, Mike, don't lie. Right. You know, I felt I felt like it was the exact same tone where they're they're really surprised. He's like, I'm okay. Yeah. Yeah. A fighting chance. You know, he's being really like uh even keeled about it. 
Yeah, and I just love this panel as he steps out. You can just see all this white light engulfing everything. There's like a hand, like one of them's kind of uh, maybe uh, covering his eyes. So we cut to the aftermath. The Nazis are all fried. Their tanks are destroyed. Also, some additional U.S. soldiers have arrived. And so this one guy, the Major, he apologizes to them for taking too long. Their friend gives off a unique energy signature that have blocked their readings. So this kind of reminded me of the Ogdrahem on Earth right now. We right. know that they're blocking mm. some of the readings. So that made me think about that, too. I don't know what that means. The Major says he's impressed that they didn't have any casualties. That's not strictly speaking true, Major, Bunker says. And we see Glesham. He's kind of mourning over the body of Redding. So they think Redding's dead. And they say the Sledgehammer guy has been pretty quiet ever since the previous night. And so we get some more cool sound effects as this giant helicopter lands. I just really like all that, how they write all those in. And so out of the helicopter come Dr. Galaragas and Professor Broom. The BPRD has arrived. Yeah. And so we remember Galaragas. Uh, she was the daughter of the original Professor Galaragas, who was in the Iron Prometheus. And she tells the sledgehammer that this mission exceeded expectations. You seem to have come through all right. I still like to take some readings. And Broom comes over and calls him Captain Fields. I'm not Captain Fields, a voice says from the armor. What? I don't understand. Not Fields? Who are you? Broom asks. Redding. I'm... No. I'm no one, the armor says. The end. I actually just kind of came with this thought like as we were going through the story right now, but it is kind of interesting that uh, Redding gets hit in the heart... And by the end of the comic, he's saving them in a giant metal armor. Oh, yeah. Because it's the same thing that happened to a certain other character. Oh. Yeah, I didn't <laughs> even think about that. I didn't even make that yeah. connection, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. but that is yeah. that is interesting. I'm pretty, sure it's, I, I'm pretty sure it's an amazing coincidence. But <laughs> it literally just dawned on me earlier as, as we got to the part where you see Redding get hit in the heart. Right, <laughs> right. I like how... Okay, um, I don't know if this was during the coloring stage or if it was uh, Jason Latour... But, you know, we were talking about all the Zipatone and Bende dots last week. Oh, yeah, you're right. And and they are all over this book, right? Yeah. They use them for shading. And then at the end, they use it in a all-new way when Redding is finally in the suit and he exits the barn. And then they cut to the sun. They're, oh, yeah. They're using that effect to kind of, like, erase, right? To Oh. It's like a reverse effect. I thought that was really cool. That is cool. Yeah, because there is something about that panel that is just um, really interesting, that effect. It's really beautiful. But yeah, you're right. It is like a negative version of that. That is so it's, cool. I love I love that. Yeah, it's not something I don't think you'd be able to do the exact same way with the traditional method. It, it, so, you know, using a digital brush, it, it really comes through. But So that's why I'm like, okay, so who did that? Was it Latour or Stewart? Right, right. It's kind of cool. Yeah, that is really, that's a really good question. But it makes it feel like an authentic old school comic too, just seeing that all over the place. Oh yeah, for sure. This next story that we're going to discuss is Sledgehammer 44 Lightning War. This is a three issue miniseries published from November 2013 to January 2014. Story by Mignola and Arcudi. Art by Lawrence Campbell. Colors by Dave Stewart and letters by Clem Robbins. I just love 
Lawrence Campbell's. Yeah. Work. I mean, this is, like, I guess, our second time to see him, or my second time. Damn, that's some fucking good work. <laughs> He's really good. Yeah. This is some of my all-time favorite Lawrence Campbell comics right here. Yeah, and um, one thing is, like, I actually did not have the back issues to this. I, I somehow missed out on this. My local comic book store... Eventually, like anything that was on the Mignolaverse, they just started throwing in my box. But sometimes I would miss out on stuff because I didn't know about this title, you know, or I didn't yeah. know that it was coming out. And so I didn't know to ask for it. But so I actually didn't read this until it was in trades. And um, I was like, how did I miss this? This is so incredible. We open in June 1933 at Hoffitt's Castle. This is a maximum security prison. And the guards talk about how cold the castle is and how it's been converted to a prison. And they gripe about having to come down there and bring dinner to this one who never touches it. And I tried to look for this. I couldn't find a reference to this exact castle, but there were places like this. Castles that had been converted into prisons. Uh Yeah, there's there's a movie by, I think it was directed by... Blatty, the guy who wrote The Exorcist. Oh, okay. okay. I didn't research it, but I'm pretty sure that they they used a castle just like this as a uh, psychiatric facility ah, during the war. Okay. Yeah. They say, I don't even know if he has a stomach. And we see the Black Flame, the Ryman Diestel version. He's been there about a year since the events of The Burning Hand. One of the guards wants to hurry up so he can play a game of scat. This is a three-player trick card game of the Ace-10 family devised around 1810. It is a national game of Germany and is considered one of the best and most interesting card games for three players. It's described as the king of German card games. Anyway, I had to look that up. You said this was about a year after the la- uh, last week's story? Yeah, because I think that was in how August. Did, yeah. how, did, how did they get him? Because he was in uh, police custody in New York. Right. So I don't. German. Yeah, I don't know. They probably had to hand him over um, to the authorities. I think um, Mark Tweedo has a good article, uh, Hell Notes, about this guy. And I think Mark Tweedo postulates that, that, you know, they probably had to hand him over to the German government or something like that. I mean, that's got to be. It's either that or they, the German government. Um, I guess, like, you know, broke him out to put him in their own jail. Right. Because, I mean, this is the kind of thing that the government, I would assume, would want to be like, no, we don't have no black flame. I don't know what you're talking about. Right, right. <laughs> and the guards... I know that they wouldn't extradite him. That is not yeah. a thing that would happen. Right. Yeah, I don't know. But the guards, they hear a voice. Someone wants to talk to Diesel, And we don't see who it is at first. He says it took effort to find him. His predecessors thought he was very dangerous and they put him in the castle. I want you to know, I don't feel that way, not in the least. You're troubled, I believe that. I understand that. You lost someone close to you. So they're referencing the death of Kamala in last week's story. But this is Germany, isn't it? In these last 20 years, what son of the fatherland hasn't gone through that same grief, that same madness? I tell you, there is no crime in that. And it's fucking Hitler. Mm-hmm. <laughs> fucking God, man! I just want to Such kick him in the face. Such a visceral reaction. I he looks. It's also weird to see him in like a suit. Yeah. Oh yeah. Before he wore his like Nazi uniform all the time. I guess I don't know. Like, is this the kind of suit that men in Germany I, wore in the? I don't know. 
30 well, he was just mm-hmm. saying his predecessors, so he only just now is coming into power. Right. Okay, okay. Yeah. yeah. Right? I'm not sure there's a Nazi party yet even, but isn't it right. amazing that with somebody like the Black Flame, that is stark and scary in itself. And then you see Hitler, and you're like, well, no, there's the real threat. It's even right. worse. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right? It's much worse. Again, the historical fiction weaving its way into the story. We cut to October 1944, Syme RAF Field in Outer Hebrides. And so this is, I, th- I believe this is a real place, or at least based on a actual Royal Air Force Station in Scotland. We see Galaragos and Broom. It's been two months since the Sledgehammer 44 story that we just read. And Galaragos says Fields is becoming less responsive every day. He's refusing missions and not speaking. Broom mentions that he hasn't taken off the armor, eaten, or gone to the bathroom either. It's obvious to everyone that there is nothing human inside the armor anymore. Can I point something out that just occurred to me? What's that? So the base they're at, Sime or Simi, Mm -hmm. S-I-M-E, that is the exact same name of the steelworks building where the future Black Flame blew up Roger. Interesting. Oh, wow. Oh, weird okay isn't that weird that is why why would they do that because <laughs> that always stood out to me they painted the name of the steelworks on the side of the building and i was like is there any point or significance yeah to that? where'd they get that from that's interesting oh wow hmm but that wasn't in scotland right yeah yeah anyway. but that, that is really interesting our experiment with Vril has gone very wrong broom says Galarraga says they just don't understand enough to say that. And unless he starts talking to us, we won't understand anything. And so we cut to this scene. And so this is, I thought that was kind of cool. We Here we get to see what happened when he exited that barn after Redding inhabited the armor. So now we're kind of understanding this is Redding now who's in the thing. Here when the Germans are talking, this guy's saying, man the tank or something like that. And then they shoot him with the tank. I forgot what he says there. For heaven's sake, I think. And then we see the armor kind of powering up to destroy all the Nazis. We saw the aftermath of it in the last one. But here, Lawrence Campbell just does an amazing job in showing the effects of the armor. I I love that they skipped this part in the last arc because it's almost more impactful to just go, oh, wow, he really did some damage. Look at the aftermath. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. That's, a, that's a lot like what they do with Lobster Johnson sometimes, where it's yeah. like, oh, he got them all. You yeah. Know? yeah. And then to go back and show it now, it's like, well, we weren't going to leave that out. Right? <laughs> we were always going to show you. So I, I really appreciated them. Yeah, that. that's a good that's a good reveal. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to say that the damage on the tank is exactly the same in this one and in Jason Latour's, which I always kind of like those little details. Oh, cool. So, okay. So here we get, we're back to like the cosmic stuff. We cut to the captain. This is where I wanted to point out that eye because it showed that eye on fields and then it kind of zoomed in on it. And then here all we see are those eyes, right? So is that fields? And now he's part of this cosmic thing. He's become a part of all of that. And he's, but he's still talking to Redding, right? That's kind of what I was thinking. I mean, it definitely makes sense because you do focus in on the, why focus in on the space eye and then show another one to be be a completely different space eye. Right. Exactly. That's what, yeah, I don't, Go ahead. I don't think that I don't think that was Fields. I think that was whatever these eyes are. 
taking on the form of fields uh, to put Redding at ease to be like, well, look, I'm not going to just show you two big floating eyes. I, I don't think the shape of it matters. You guys are taking this so literally. <laughs> it's meant to be oh, an abstraction. Yes. It's it's like This a, is just my, my attempt to kind of, yeah, rationalize. How, how are you supposed to draw a fucking... cosmic cosmic yeah like so this is just like an interpretation it's just like a cosmic you know silver surfer doctor strange kind of a infinite universe cosmic shit well i wasn't um i wasn't referring to the actual literal shape i was referring to the you focus on an eye to focus on another eye. Right, that's yeah. kind of what I was. Referring. Yeah, that's what I was. Yeah, yeah. It's just you know, it's the ideas behind. It. It's supposed to be kind of a like a an idea. Yeah, it's not supposed to be like it's literally a person's eyes floating in space. <laughs> well, you know those three panels we were talking about in the last issue where it shows you uh, the angel touching the the flame and. This feels like like these eyes, wherever they are, space, the beyond, whatever it is. This feels like the fourth panel in that sequence. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. I love this, that's why I think it's interesting because this is like, oh, here's the rest of the story because we don't really know what Vril is. It's a secret fire, okay? But what's that? Right. You know. Right. We can't tell you it's a secret. <laughs> I love the uh, watercolor painting look of it. I love the yeah. uh, the colors and everything. It's really nice. Yeah, this is just amazing, this work here by Lawrence Campbell and Dave Stewart. And so this voice that's speaking to Redding, it's telling him how 70 were dead to spare three lives. Your great act of heroism, your grand effort, your world peace. But you remember the order of it wrong. You didn't sacrifice your life in that battle. First you were shot, you died, and then your soul entered into the armor. That's how it happened. That's why you're still here now. What I sacrifice doesn't matter, and I don't care about a bunch of dead Nazis, Redding says. Those grunts were my friends, and on the right side of the war. If I had to do it over again, you bet I would. If that were true, why don't you? This voice says. You have refused to go on any more missions. You ignore your two allies completely. Why? Is it because you wonder about things outside of this world? This small world you still hang on to? Do you think about what you gave up to stay here? You just got finished telling me I didn't give up anything, Redding says. You didn't sacrifice your life, Patrick Redding. You gave up the infinite itself. Yeah, really amazing. I love all that. Yeah, that's intense. It, it, it is it's intense. like, are you technically dead at that point? Right. If you give up the infinite? If you have free will to give up the infinite? I don't know. I also like how... Um... Uh, when we saw Fields, who was uh, ready to accept it, and he was showing like none of this matters, and it's the Nazis doing fucking evil Nazi shit. But I mean, it makes you think like you gave up the infinite, and so the infinite is so infinite, right? <laughs> I mean, it's just like this so mind-boggling. You can't even really fathom how it all right. works or something. And so stuff like what happens on Earth just is like a blip to it, right? It's so trivial. But I think yeah. the point here that is that it matters. That it matters. It still yeah. matters. Yeah. Right. What you do matters. Mm-hmm. And so that's, I, I, yeah, I love the idea that one person's infinite is not going to be a one size fits all. Right. There's, in, that's the whole point of infinity is there's infinite infinities. And so this guy's like, yeah, well, you know, <laughs> what are you going to do? <laughs> Had to kill some fucking Nazis. So, 
we cut over to the captain. He's talking to this guy in a tie, and they smoke, and the guy says he's dropping off some film, but it's classified. The captain says he's got clearance to see it, but he's beginning to wonder what it's for. Every day he has to report there with a plan for duty and wait on a special passenger, but he never actually gets airborne. He wants to help with the war and do his part, but he's getting fed up being stuck in a holding pattern. And this guy says he hears that a lot. And we cut to Galaragas and Broom, and they're watching this film with the sledgehammer armor. And uh, so this is really cool. We kind of get to see the pilot and the co-pilot. One of these guys is named Corrigan, right? I thought that that was kind of interesting. Is mm-hmm. it? The co-pilot. Where have we heard that name? <laughs> yeah, that's a very famous name to us. And then the pilot is Elroy. And so we see them talking, and he's filming, like, the wing of the plane. And um, I just really love how... I, I love whenever people are watching, like, they're watching, like, a playback of something that happened, some fucked up thing that happened. And I yeah. think they capture it so well in this scene. He's like, huh, that's weird. You know, for a second there, I thought, I thought I saw... I must be losing my mind. Holy mother, what the hell is happening? And we see the black flame kind of just touch down out of midair. He just flies out of the sky and lands on the wing of the plane. And when he touches down, this little movement that he makes as he lands, I really love how Lawrence Campbell does that. And it's very similar to that picture that we saw in Johan's book. Oh, right. And so this symbol that's on the wing is also on that picture, too, because I went back and looked at it. Okay. So and do you think they had this in mind when they showed us that snapshot? They must have had something in mind, because they even wrote on there, it says, in the dead, it says, Photograph during experimental flight of flying wing, nine twenty forty four. So they even knew like what the air, that there was going to be this like experimental aircraft. You know what I mean? Oh, so... Okay, isn't that interesting, though? Now yeah. it's 44, so we have skipped several years here from the opening scene. Oh, right. That was only one year after the Lobster Johnson, the Burning Hand, so between 33 and 44. Okay, because look, he was, in theory, getting his power from Kamala. Right. Well, how's he doing this? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, there. I guess something had to happen between now and then. Maybe he realized it... the power was inside himself all the, <laughs> the time. whole time. <laughs> or is it is it safe to assume that the Nazis had some? You know, they were, they talked to him over the years, did a lot of tests, came up with some sort of synthesized right. version of this song. Or I don't know. Here he is. Uh, he looks a lot more powerful than he did in the first one. He's flying. Right. right? Maybe he's got some earbuds that are playing it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we see him come towards the cameraman. Elroy is telling Corgan to make a jump for his shoot. And then at the end of the film, we see the fist of the black flame crash through the airplane cockpit. And then that's it. Galarraga says the cameraman bailed out, but the Nazis got the plane and the pilot, Major Elroy. And she really tries to appeal to the sledgehammer armor or Redding, I guess, is inside there. She talks about how Elroy was engaged, and he was a nice boy. This is different from other missions that he's ignored. They're torturing him right now, she says. He will die if they don't get him soon. And the armor is just totally unresponsive. So Galarraga, she asks the others to leave the room. And we see they're kind of in this surveillance room. They're kind of watching. They can see what's going on in the room through like a double-sided mirror. So they're still seeing what's happening. And so Galarraga, she tells the sledgehammer that Broom doesn't think he's really human anymore. 
are you still human? And she starts unbuttoning her shirt. And so Broom is like in the next room, he's like, what the devil is she doing? And so she reveals her scarred back. She says, this isn't just a wartime mission. It's a mission of mercy and empathy. And she recalls getting whipped. So um, she was being tortured back in the Iron Prometheus and the lobster saved her. I was lucky someone came to save me, she says. And this middle panel right here, give me some more Lawrence Campbell lobster. That's yeah, so that awesome. Is great. Yeah. I love that panel. It's so good. And don't you love how, of course, Broom is over there going, I don't think he's human anymore. Right. right? <laughs> it's like just like him to be like, no, 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 there's something more here. It's supernatural now. Yeah, no, you're right. Such like a broom thing. <laughs> <laughs> so she holds up a picture of Elroy to the face of the armor. We're not talking about soldiers who may be aided by your action. This boy, this one boy has a name. This is his face and only you can help him. Without you, he dies. If you don't have that compassion, then yes, I suppose you may not be human. And so she leaves the room, and Broom comes up to her, and he's like, he asks her how she could be so manipulative, and what was all that about taking her blouse off? And then as they argue, the sledgehammer armor comes out. Excuse me, tell me what you need me to do. Yeah, so I like that moment. Yeah, he could barely fit through the door. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So we cut to this plane. The captain finally gets to fly. He's got this co-pilot. Glenn is pretty pumped to take the hammer out on his second mission ever. And so as they enter Polish airspace, Glenn sees a bogey. Best call it in, he says. But the captain shoots him. Ah, he's a Nazi double-crosser as well. Boo! Okay, so when he first showed up, and he's talking to that guy who's dropping off the film, I was like, I don't trust one of these guys. I don't know who it is yet. (laughs) (laughs) I knew something was up with one of them. And so Sledge, the I I keep calling him Sledgehammer. I'm just going to call him Redding, because that's who it is, right? So Redding, he hears the commotion in the back. Suddenly the plane gets hit. So I really like this reveal. There's a big blown out hole in the side of the plane and the black flame grabs the armor and he holds him up. So we already know this this thing is heavy, right? They had to hold yeah. it in a wheelbarrow and here he picks it up with one hand. Make make a note of that shot though of the black flame having physical dominance over uh, Redding. Yeah. Yeah, but this page is awesome. As he holds the sledgehammer up, he says, what a lovely gift from the Allies, Yes. And the captain comes out, and he's all, Heil, Heil all the guys. All my training paid off. Our aim was always high. I think the Fuhrer will be pleased. And the Black Flame doesn't respond. And so the captain is like, do this Heil thing with me, or whatever, right? And the Black mm-hmm. Flame's like, of course. And then it just blows up the plane. I love that shot from outside where it just says, boom, and you see that black fire. That is so cool. So he must have killed that guy, right? Oh, oh yeah. yeah, yeah, of course. I think we actually see his burned corpse falling in the next uh, in the next issue at some point. I was like, why are you coming out doing all this shit when the fucking plane is crashing, jackass? <laughs> Just fucking go. <laughs> yeah, and this cover by Lawrence Campbell for Chapter 2 is so cool. I just love that effect with the shadow of the armor. It makes uh, this image... Just very well done, very artful. So now we open in Austria, and we see those Nazi scummer torturing Elroy to try and get information about the flying wing. And this one guy with the thing around his neck is the Steel Hawk. So I don't know if we you remember that, but we also saw the Steel Hawk in that folder from BPRD The Dead. There was a picture of him. Mm-hmm. 
And then later when we saw Mr. Pope's office, we saw that headpiece in there, too. Yeah. yeah. So back in the scrapbook, they said that photo was taken after he was captured in 1939. But here we are in 44. Ah. Uh, and he is not captured. Yeah, unless he, got, he escaped was, somehow. Yeah, maybe he was arrested and sent back to Germany, too. And Hitler was like, yeah, pardoned, you know. Yeah, he's making his now, own little Now you're crew. in my employ. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. So this flying wing here actually reminds me of um, the Raiders of the Lost Ark where he's fighting that big guy and then he gets shot by the plane engines. That's what this plane reminds me of. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, Because I believe it was a flying wing as well. We cut back over to the Black Flame having just exploded the plane that they had Redding on. And the armor is falling through the sky. And then here in that second panel, we see that body right there. I think that's the the pilot, right? That's that guy that was all like... Yeah, that's a, do the hollow thing with me, guys. And so those oh, right. those eyes from the void, they like are talking to Redding in the armor. Is this what you saw waiting for you on your righteous path? Fire, destruction, oblivion. They're what you stand for now, Redding. This is your moral high ground. I really love this. The black flame kind of flies up so he can fly, I guess. He's doing all sorts yeah, of see, weird things in yeah. here. He's way more powerful, and I, I have a theory about this, which I think other readers share, but I'll, I'll bring it up later. Okay. And he grabs the sledgehammer armor. He's impressed the armor is undamaged, but the turtle inside, he couldn't have survived. And so just then, the armor, you know, he lights up and blasts him with this huge blast of real energy. We cut over to Elroy, and he's managed to get out of his restraints, and they're pretty bloody. Right, now I remember, he says, as he's clicking some switches and buttons on the airplane. So as Elroy is working on it, he's like talking to the plane as he's doing it. And he's wishing he could fly it out of there. But he starved himself for a week to get out of his restraints. And we see his wrists are all raw and bloody. And he assures the plane they won't hurt it. They want you too bad. See you back in the States if we're both lucky. And so he leaps down. I just really like this panel where he leaps down too. I just like that motion right there. Yeah, it's... yeah. He's got he's got style. Yeah, and he's confronted by this guy that looks like a big sumo wrestler, and he just punches the shit out of Elroy. And... So who's that guy? Yeah, I don't know. He's the Steel Hawks like um, sidekick, I guess. <laughs> thought he was like a henchman. Yeah, you seem more durable than we thought. He tells Elroy, or are we too lenient with you? Either way, we'll try harder, and then I think we can move on to the next phase. And through the sound effects, we can hear that the wrestler is beating up Elroy. Back in the air, we get this amazing sky battle with Redding and the Black Flame, and they're both, like, shooting at each other in the sky and all this stuff. Okay, now look at this. Um, The Black Flame definitely has more power than he did in the Burning Hand, and he's got more attitude as well he is like a classic golden age villain now right? oh yeah yeah talking trash and all this but when you look at these panels of how their powers are like opposing each other right, right? and almost like not that they're, they're like canceling each other out kind of so if sledgehammer is using vril then i have to think the black flame is using anti-vril right <laughs> and and so you know, so then think back to the Black Flame story arc where the frogs start to um, use him. I don't think the frogs used the Black Flame because he held that mantle. And they even made fun of it. Right. right? They called him Flame or whatever. <laughs> and 
they were just making fun of what he called himself. I think they used him because they could turn him into actual anti-Vril, or, you know, for lack of a better name. Right. Uh, but, like, Landis Pope, he got them halfway with his artificial suit and artificial flame. Then the frogs were like, oh, this guy's trying to make anti-Vril. Because right. And they built, that, this. they built that gore temple, that giant thing, that kind of... Yeah, exactly. And I just have to think that it's more likely the frogs would recognize the power, the anti vril before they'd recognize a golden-aged supervillain. Right. <laughs> that, that would be meaningless to the frogs. And so I think that we start to see... Like, beginning right here, I think we start to see some parallels that we can identify for the rest of this uh, series that lend to that theory. Yeah, I like that. And so, yeah, what is that power? I mean, we just call it, I guess, the Black Flame or this Black Fire. But, yeah, I don't know if we have a name for that. As the Black Flame is taunting, redding, he says, That's a hell of a creepy voice you got there, Skullboy. Bet it scares the schnitzel out of your average crowd. But if you want me to know what you're saying... Try English. And so Redding sends out this huge blast that engulfs everything, and it throws the black flame backwards. And then so this double page is so cool. All the action is just so well done. Yeah, I mean... But all yeah. this kind of, like, posing and taunting. That's all. Is that all, Little Turtle? The black flame grabs Redding. This sledgehammer does not strike so hard. So this is what I was saying at the end of the last issue. Look at how many times... The Black Flame tries to assert himself or try to tries to be physically dominant, right? Right. He's such an arrogant prick. Yeah. Like, just shut up and do your work, you know? <laughs> but no, he's always got to be, like, holding him by the throat or something. Yeah. And get right in his yeah. face. And that, that would be more annoying than any sort of Black <laughs> Flame power. You want to know me, Turtle? I am death. And the Black Flame, he's already holding Redding, and so there's another huge blast of black fire, and it leaves Redding's armor smoking in the sky. The Black Flame tries to take off the helmet, but it won't come loose, and so he just starts diving straight down with the armor. You think I cannot break you? I can break you, he says. And so there, again, it's kind of like going along with what you were saying, Matt. Mm -hmm. And just then, as they're going downward through the sky, Broom calls in through the walkie, Broom says they can't make contact with the pilot, so they don't know that the thing is blown up yet. You know what I mean? But they say a homing signal is coming from the flying wing in Austria. So this is what Elroy was doing when he was clicking all those uh, things in the plane. Stand by to receive coordinates, Broom says. And at that exact moment, the flame throws the armor down towards this mountain. There's a huge whoosh and a flash of light. And the armor is gone. And so the black flame is just left there in the sky like, what the fuck? What the hell? <laughs> I love that. We cut to these two soldiers. They're in a war plane. You ever heard of a mission like this? One ass. Who has? I mean, other than Operation Fortitude. And so Operation Fortitude was a code name for a World War II military deception employed by the Allied Nations as part of an overall deception strategy codenamed Bodyguard during the buildup to the 1944 Normandy landings. And so I watched a whole YouTube video about Operation Fortitude. It was really interesting. There's been a couple missions like this, but I don't know if you've ever seen this. Like, they actually had, like, inflatable tanks. Yeah. And they dropped dummies yeah. from the sky. And so the dummies, they would, like, 
when they after they landed they would like blow up and burn and so it looked like the troopers had burned their parachutes to or something like that and it uh. was this whole thing and so they uh so basically they they set up this fake army that was led by general Patton, and it was to distract the germans from the real army that was setting up at normandy and so operation Fortitude was actually still going on when the normandy was starting but it was all fake there was nothing. So, yeah, that's what they're referencing in this. But it was really interesting. Yeah, check out Operation Fortitude. Uh, the video podcast that I watched was called uh, Dark History or something like that. It was really cool. I feel like I was talking. I either read something about this or talking to somebody. I thought I was talking to you about this. Okay. So something about like the using the uh, inflatable tanks and Right, like yeah. The soldier says the brass had it on the boards for a while, though. I don't think I'll ever forget tonight anytime soon. Neither will the Germans. And so we reveal this huge fleet of planes that's coming over. We cut over to the Steel Hawk, and so this is really weird. He's got Elroy and the wrestler hooked up to some device, and it's like transferring Elroy's knowledge over to the wrestler. And they learn that Elroy set off the homing transmitter. And so Elroy kind of laughs to himself. Over at a German radio tower, the Germans detect that fleet so it's like a dummy fleet only one of the plane actually has guys in there but the germans are not prepared for this attack so they start gearing up these huge anti-aircraft guns that is basically the gun that we saw in the burning hand yeah we did see one like that yeah and so we cut over to the germans they're firing at all the dummy fleet the soldiers meanwhile snuck in under the radar to get the flying wing we see the steel hawk No, it makes little sense, he says. Why risking a bombing run? They could damage their precious flying wing if they do that. But they don't have to. Redding in the sledgehammer armor steps out of the shadows. The wrestler, he jumps out. I love this panel. He jumps out at the armor, and Redding just kind of bats him away. Sends him flying. That is so cool. Redding rescues Elroy. He's all beat up and wasted by this point. He mutters that... They got what they wanted out of him. They pulled it out of his brain like taffy. Couldn't stop him. Too weak. I'm a traitor, he says. And uh, this bottom panel, somehow Lawrence Campbell and Dave Stewart make this armor emote with just a face shot. You know what I mean? When uh, I was telling him all that, I was just like, uh, I thought that was just really good pacing, really good panel there. We cut over to the rescue team. They're trying to figure out how to get Elroy and then a light comes down from the sky. They think it's the Nazis, but it's Redding in the sledgehammer armor carrying Elroy. Treat this man right. He's a hero, Redding says. Now get in the air ASAP. But one of the soldiers is like, hold on, I'm supposed to fly the wing out of here. And Redding is like, forget the wing. And I thought this was interesting because like, they appealed to him with Elroy. Yeah. Like That's how they got him to do it. So he doesn't care about any of that other stuff. The soldier says it's his mission to get the wing. They sent him because he can fly it. And just then we see the wrestler taking off in the wing. So uh, they transferred Elroy's information over to the wrestler. But I just think it's hilarious seeing the sumo wrestler piloting this giant thing. Right. (laughs) Redding says, you didn't see that. Understand? All you'll say in your report is that you couldn't find the wing. Nothing else. Take Major Elroy home. I'll handle the rest. And so we see the soldiers taking off. And then all of a sudden, there's this huge strike of black lightning, and the black flame stands over him. In another dominant pose. Yeah. It's so obnoxious, the way he keeps showing up being like, I'm better than you. Yeah. Can't stand that guy. (laughs) (laughs) 
I did like this effect on his fist, though. I was looking at that, the way that they do that. That's where I kind of wonder, yeah. like, is that... That has to be Lawrence Campbell, right? Oh, yeah. The flame coming off of his fist. Yeah. Chapter 3. The soldiers fly out under the cover of the decoy planes. They need to get Elroy back fast. He's bleeding internally. And suddenly the flying wing tears through all those dummy planes. I love all this action right here. It is so interesting. And I just I just love that motion by Lawrence Campbell. Well, you got to love the way he draws the flying wing with such straight lines. Yeah. It, it oh, yeah. really jumps off the page and it stands out as something that's, you know, just downright high tech as compared to everything else that he draws in this comic. Right. They arm the nose gun, hoping the wrestler tries to outrun them. They start getting shot at by these other Nazi planes that have ambushed them. Uh, it's so good how they're, I mean, this whole scene is just done so well. Yeah, I really like all this kind of old-time war stuff, and it really puts you right in there. Back with Redding and the Black Flame, the Black Flame says, Stay down, little turtle. Your precious flying wing is up there out of reach. Your men, they're at the mercy of our jets, but you can still save them. Stay down, he pushes Redding down as he tries to get back up. All I want is you, turtle, just you. Surrender, and they live. And I notice, like, the black flame, like, half of his uniform is kind of burned off, and you can kind of see, mm -hmm. I guess, yeah. what he looks like underneath. I thought that was a really cool effect, too. And so, just then, Redding sends out this huge blast of real energy. He sends the black flame flying totally out of this hangar that they're in. And, uh, yeah, I mean, this page is amazing. I love that shot of the beam coming out of the top of the hangar. Yeah. And so, as the black flame lands... The Steel Hawk comes running up. Are you hurt, Herr Diestel? The Black Flame says it would be better for him if he was. It was he who caused the Allies to attack. Because he had the wrestler take off in the plane, they would have never bombed it. And he's going to tell Hitler. <laughs> he's like, I'm going to tell on you. <laughs> <laughs> up in the air, the soldiers uh, battle the two Nazi planes. They shoot one down. Good shooting, Billy, one says. They didn't take us seriously. That was their mistake. But it doesn't look like they're going to make another. And we see the flying wing coming straight at them. And yeah, again, all this action is just really well done. I love this uh, as they blow up one of the planes. Just the color and everything make it really dynamic. This comic has turned into classic supervillain superhero. Right? Oh, yeah. I mean, they're literally in the sky flying around fighting each other. Yeah, and I mean, you have this one guy sitting in his cell at the beginning. Right. Imprisoned. Yeah. <laughs> powerless. And then you have another guy who's like sitting in the, I guess, like an interrogation room or debriefing room or something at the base. And likewise, he's like, yeah, I don't really know what my purpose is. And now their purpose, no, no matter what the mission may be, their purpose is to fight each other. Right. Yeah. And that that is just that is the end all be all golden age superhero comic book storyline. Oh, yeah. And I really love this. So Redding in the armor, he flies towards it from below. And then the Black Flame tackles him again out of the sky. He tells Redding that he'll let him rescue his men if he surrenders. Sure, why not, Redding says. Hell, I can see my tombstone already. This chump trusted a skull-faced Nazi. <laughs> and we get a sledgehammer boom. Yep. The Steel Hawk. He's talking to the wrestler flying the flying wing, and he tells him he must not fail him. Be sure of your success before you fire. And so he fires. He hits the pilot in the shoulder, but the co-pilot gets the controls. 
and Redding flies up. And I really like this. As we turn the page, we see that he went right through the flying wing. That is so awesome. And he's like pulled the wrestler out of the plane and just holding him in the sky. That is so cool. Yeah, all in one move. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's a really satisfying type shot, you know. I have to think he learned that move from the Black Flame. Oh, yeah, he just saw him do it. Yeah, grabbing a guy by the throat. (laughs) We'll figure out how you learn to fly that thing later. But first, better make sure all the king's men got nothing to work with. And Redding in the armor, he totally blasts the flying wing. Amazing work by Lawrence Campbell as this thing just blows up in the air. And there he's referring to Humpty Dumpty, right? He wants to make sure that they Mm -hmm. can't put the flying Mm -hmm. wing back together or salvage any of its parts. And Redding, he's still holding the wrestler in the air. He tells him... You got no idea how lucky you are. And then immediately the wrestler gets totally roasted by the black flame. So he's just like holding the skeleton there. And look at that sound effect. Frax. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy sound. Yeah. I offered you compassions, turtle. This should have ended with no loss of life, the black flame says. But now my men and soon yours too are dead because you chose battle. All that blood on your rusty claws and the black flame starts diving downward, holding the armor. And they crash into this giant crater and have this huge superhero fight where they're blasting each other with energy and everything. Can I just say that with the Black Flame scene, like, this is all your fault because you didn't surrender. You know, I didn't, I wasn't going to kill them until blah, blah, blah. I'm like, right. I fucking hate it when people say shit like yeah. that. I just want to be all like, <laughs> it just makes me want to smack him in the face. And so he finally steps on Reddy and he like stomps him down he picks him up again by the by the collar or whatever by the neck he just keeps doing that how many times have we seen that through three issues right right? he's done it so many times he just doesn't learn at this point he should be completely unleashing the full weight of his power Oh, but he he is falling back on arrogance again. And he just keeps pummeling the armor. He's like punching it. He's bashing it into the ground. And so finally he smashes him and the chest kind of breaks open. Uh, The turtle shell cracks at last and we see there's a big wound and like the energy is kind of like sparking out of there. And then so the black flame is looking at it. We see kind of like that beautiful cosmic effect like when we saw that big void with the eyes that kind of purple color, and then I just really love this pacing as it all kind of like just fades to this white, right? This huge burst unleash of energy. We cut back over to Hitler, and he's with his guards, and he's with the Steel Hawk again, and they're looking (laughs) over the remains of Diesel. And so the Steel Hawk is saying, he was very loyal to you, my Fuhrer. We lost a great man today. And Hitler's like, shut up, Bergen. (laughs) I just really like that. Well, and the the Black Flame didn't get a chance to rat him out. Oh, right? right. Yeah, he didn't get to tell on him. And Hitler says the Black Flame was one of the Acer. In Old Norse, Acer were members of the principal pantheon in Norse religion. This pantheon includes Odin, Frigg, Thor, Baldur, and Tyre. The second pantheon is known as the Vanir. In Norse mythology, the two pantheons wage war against each other, which results in a unified pantheon. And so that's what Hitler thought that. So, you know, in this story, it's just like you mentioned, Matt, they had like submarines going underground to look for all this mystical shit. And so this is how they've mm-hmm. interpreted what the Black Flame was. Get him a uniform, Bergen, and a sidearm. I won't have him buried like a dog. So I think that further gives us credence of that thing that we saw in Pope's office being this guy. Right. Yeah. 
we cut back over. And so I like this panel. We see the remains of the black flame. Then we cut over and we see the armor in a similar position. A big gaping wound in the chest. Galaragos and Broom talk. Our classified aircraft, a total wreck, and behind enemy lines and parts unretrievable. And all we have to show for your mission is one soldier. And Broom's like, well, isn't that what you lured Private Redding in with the first place? The one soldier's life? You enjoy this, Broom. A breach of national security amuses you. And Broom says, what's the point? There's no evidence of any life in the armor anymore. And now the techs are reporting a total absence of real energy as well. There's nobody in there to scold. Nonsense. He made his way back to base. The armor was found on the airfield this morning, Broom says, seven weeks after the mission. Who knows how it got there? Believe what you will, Galarraga says, but we've seen this dead act from him before. I know he's still in there. And then so we cut to Redding, and he's like in the void or something. He's in that kind of, he's in that infinite. Well, it's not a void. There are stars. Yeah. I guess he's watching Elroy come home, right? Mm-hmm. those two eyes are there they're talking to him again yes patrick redding you saved this man one single man none of your guff okay redding says anyway it was four lives and i'm not the one who killed that japanese pilot you're still entangled in the petty tragedies of life the eyes say lifelong lost to you remain focused on this world and you'll miss the grand view of all enlightenment will be impossible pow if you're so goddamn enlightened redding says how come you got so many beefs? This is the question. Yeah, why is it like, looking at him? Okay. Why does it care what he's doing? I, I thought that, that was the out. <laughs> yeah. Why you got so many beefs? Because <laughs> oneness should make me happy. Is that what you think? Happiness isn't the point. When are you going to accept that? And Redding just watches Elroy laugh with all his newly reunited people. Not today, he says. And I just love this Not panel as he's today. smiling. The end. Yeah, so what do you like, think yeah, of but, that? Like, happiness isn't the point. Okay, fine, but you're still, like, that doesn't, you're just avoiding his point, which is, why are you all involved in my shit? Right. Like, why don't you just chill the <laughs> fuck out? Like, <laughs> I do like that. I do like that they you know? address that. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, so what do you think of this weird war slash cosmic existential story? Could use more Lobster Johnson. <laughs> um I thought it was really cool. No, I mean, good, I, I like the whole uh, war angle, and it's like, you know, just like something, I guess maybe being raised watching World War II movies all the goddamn time. I really like World War II stories, you know? Just fucking up Nazis any way you can. But <laughs> uh, the whole addition of the cosmic angle was like a really weird, cool, freaky touch. I, yeah. I really enjoyed that, you know? I really like that, too. That really appealed to me. And I, like I was saying, I, I missed out on this one, and when I went back and got the trade... I was just so blown away by this series. It's such a good read. I do want to talk about this note in the sketchbook by Scott Alley. It reads, Legendary EC Comics artist John Severin contributed to the Hellboy line of books for the first time when John Arcudi and I had the idea to do a series of one-shots about the War on Frogs. Arcudi came up with a story that we thought was appropriate for Sev, and we all had a great time working with each other, including Sev's wife, Michelina. We asked Sev if he wanted to do another project, and he asked for a Western. This led to Witchfinder Lost and Gone Forever, conceived especially for Sev. And as that series was wrapping up, we asked Sev what he wanted to do next, and he asked for a World War II story. No one has ever done Westerns or war better than comics than John Severin. The Hellboy books start at the tail end of the war when Hellboy comes to Earth. However, in Lobster Johnson the Iron Prometheus, Mignola had introduced the Vril Energy suit, which would wind up in the custody of the BPRD. 
Mignola and Arcudi decided we could give Sev his World War II story by putting the suit in action in Europe. Sometimes that's how stories came to be. The five-issue Lost and Gone Forever was a long haul for Sev, who began work on it in his late 80s. He asked for something shorter to follow it, and Arcudi and Mignola came up with a two-issue story at the beginning of this collection. Shortly after finishing Lost and Gone Forever, Sev, age 89, started work on Sledgehammer, but was unable to finish it. A couple of his completed pages follow this note. Not long after he stopped work on Sledgehammer, John Severin passed away. We've been lucky to work with a lot of incredible artists on these books, but it was a special honor for all of us to work with John. And then it says, John Powers Severin, December 1921 to February 2012. And there are some really cool pieces of John Severin art from the beginning of the story, and we see them like painting Sledgehammer on the side of this big missile and all that stuff. I think it's really cool. And um, you said there was some in the actual issue, right? Was it these same panels that are in the trade? Just the one of uh, at the end of the first issue. It's just the one of the guy painting the word sledgehammer. Nice. On. But um, I, I just love that because Severin was known for war comics. Yeah, yeah. Um, Harvey Kurtzman was doing war anthologies for Marvel and you know making some pretty good money churning out like anthology comics especially about war stuff because that genre has always been really popular in comics and pulps and so he hired severin to make some of those and actually you know we were talking about sergeant fury and his howling commandos earlier right john severin drew that book oh and, awesome <laughs> uh, yeah or i maybe he just did pencils or inks but he he worked on it so isn't it fitting that one of the last things he was doing in his life was making a war comic oh yeah that it, yeah it all like, came back around yeah yeah it man i make comics if he was 90 when he died if i'm making comics at 89 right. 90 years old <laughs> can you imagine the energy that it would take to do that the guy is a legend yeah. and and uh you know he lived like 40 miles away from me i didn't even know it oh wow yeah, he lived in Denver. I had no idea. Or at least he lived there when he died. But Right, right. Not like I would have gone to his house or anything, but <laughs> you know, yeah. it's just cool to be in that proximity. Oh, yeah. And I mean, he worked up right until the very end. That's so crazy. Yeah, he was a he was one of the legendary old school commercial artists and it's like that was his purpose, yeah. you know? It's pretty cool. He brought a lot of satisfaction to people. And as much as I like Jason Latour's work on this, just imagine if, oh, it, yeah. if I mean, the same story done by Severin, I just would have been epic. Yeah, I was uh, about to say, it's just like getting to see these two pages is like it lets you think what could have been had he uh, been able to finish the story before he passed away. Right. Yeah, yeah this, this artwork is just gorgeous. It's beautiful. And that's not to take and, away from Latour because his work was great too. Well, yeah, and kudos to these guys for hiring artists like that. You know, like yeah. old school guys. Sure. That, that's really cool because <laughs> you got to think like, well, he's 89. How quickly can he draw? You know, is it? But the, I don't think they take that into account. I think they're like, no, oh, it's John Severin. Of course, we're going to hire him. Right, right. And further, we're going to write a story for him. Like, OK, so first we see snapshots in that photo album that Johan found back in the dead. And then they elaborate on the black flame in the burning hand. And then they elaborate on Sledgehammer and the black flame because they were writing a story just for. Right. Well, I, I mean, originally the black flame wasn't in that one, but they're they're writing a story for 
this particular artist. So they expand on Sledgehammer. Then they bring the Black Flame into it. And you could just see how somebody just took one little snapshot and blew it up right into yes. these amazing comics, you know. And and part of the reason we got to Lightning War is because Severn wanted to do another war comic. Right. Yeah. And I just think that's the coolest thing in the world because they're they're just it's not making lemonade out of lemons. It's it's uh I'm not sure what the actual phrase should be there or analogy, but but they are making the best of these situations. They say, okay, well, we got to come up with a story. Let's go big. Let's connect all these things that we've planted earlier, you know, which may or may not have ever come to fruition or been a big deal. But okay, we've just decided now they are a big deal. Right, right. And that's how you end up with Sledgehammer 44. And that's how you end up with Lightning War. And I mean, trust me, they only keep doing this, you know? Yeah. But, yeah, I just think there's an epic quality to the way these books are created. Yeah, and in the sketchbook, we go back to those sketches from the Iron Prometheus. So they bring back those exact designs of the VES suit, which I think is really cool as well, because we saw Mr. Sachs, like wearing that headpiece. And so they're like, let's bring this back. And now this guy Fields is going to be wearing that too. We also see designs for those Nazi bots, like I was saying, Guy Davis and Mignola going back and forth with their little notes to John Severin, too. I like that. And then when Jason Latour takes over, you see him sketching out the different um, soldiers. And they talk about Lawrence Campbell. Scott Alley writes, Lawrence Campbell came on for a three-issue BPRD story, Wasteland, collected in A Cold Day in Hell. We loved his work and wanted to make him a permanent part of the Hellboy team, offering him a follow-up on the first Sledgehammer 2 part that Jason drew as well as hiring him to do a couple covers for Lightning War before he took over the covers for BPRD Hell on Earth. We see Lawrence Campbell's kind of uh, different designs for the cover and a, a lot of his process in laying out these really epic pages, which I just really enjoy looking at. They're awesome. Yeah, really cool. Um, and so I guess that's the end of the Ryman Diesel version of the Black Flame too, because we saw him pretty roasted there at the end. Yeah, let's hope so. <laughs> I really like this Abe. Oh, Jason Latour, yeah. For the, in the sketchbook, in the back of the sketchbook, that's a really badass thing. I so. like whenever they do the evolved version of Abe because yeah. most of the time when you see sketches or whatever, it's um, old school Abe. Yeah, no, I like it. I like the evolved yeah. version. That's really cool. Yeah, with the little like lanyard and the badge and all that. That's awesome. Yeah, but the the lanyard is old school Abe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, excellent. And so this was great, uh, getting to do Lobster Johnson and Lightning War, getting these backstories. And again, just like Matt said, all these things are going to continue to play forward. So this is creating some really nice momentum for stuff that we're going to get to next. And we'll have another episode next week. Now Aubrey's going to say all the things. All right, everybody, share us your thoughts on Sledgehammer 44 and the Lightning War. You can send us a Hey You Damn Guys at HellboyBookClub at gmail.com. Follow us on Facebook at Hellboy Book Club Podcast and on Instagram and Twitter at Hellboy Book Club. You can also find the Discord link on our Facebook page and the reading order as well. You can find the podcast on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Also, be sure to check out our friends at uh, Manulaverse for all the stuff that they do over there. And always, always a thank you to Paul from Goddard for the amazing music. I mean, that, that theme last week was... Wow, I didn't get to pre-hear it this time. It was just amazing. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and then always, you know, thanks to Mark Trudell for the help with the reading order. And yeah, so 
Next week, we are going to be, and I know a lot of you are excited for this one, BPRD, Hell on Earth, The Reign of the Black Flame. I know, I'm really excited. There are people losing their minds. Oh, <laughs> fucking shit. Yeah, so don't lose your minds too much and grab those issues, back issues, trades, digitals, and everything, and join us next week on the Hellboy Book Club Podcast. Thanks a lot for listening, everybody. I'm John Salinas. And I'm Daniel. I'm Matt Trackbine. And I'm Aubrey Lovo saying, robots, robots are fighting this damn war. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best line. (laughs) 